Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordics Gaming Podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders from across the gaming industry to discuss the passions and challenges and their ideas. I'm Heather and I connect businesses with talented freelancers in the Swedish gaming market. Today I'm joined by Paul, Marcus and Jonas to discuss creating a game behind the curtains. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and what your biggest passion is currently. Jonas, do you want to start us off? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my name uh, my name is Jonas Karavan. Uh, I've been uh, in Sweden for uh, roughly eight years. I've been working with uh, Ubisoft for uh, 14 years, started in the Bucharest office, and I joined the massive for uh, Division 1 and most of those 14 years have been spent uh, in QA. Uh, however, the last three years I've uh, moved uh, in production. So right now my uh, my current role is associate producer for uh, for uh, Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. Lovely. It's very exciting. That one's just been announced, hasn't it? Yes, it has. <laughs> good, uh, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It looks very exciting. Um, and then, Paul, do you want to just give a quick introdu- introduction to yourself? Sure. Uh, I am Paul Dupre. I am a game designer here in Sweden. Uh, I am an American expat. Got about 10 years QA experience, and I have transferred over towards game design. I'm working at uh, Paradox Interactive across various roles. Uh, lastly, having been in uh, game design of Victoria 3, and I'll be moving over to Chief Rebel and trying a new challenge over there soon. Amazing. Very exciting changes for you there as well. Yeah. Um, and then finally, Marcus, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hello. Uh, my name is Marcus Levick. Uh, currently head of QA at a company called Rensport. And we're making a simulation racing game. Uh, worked with Ianut as well in the past at Ubisoft, uh, doing QA there as well for about eight years on Division 1 and Division 2. Uh, so that's what I'm up to currently, so still in QA. Amazing. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Let's move on to the topic and focus. You've all got a question or statement on creating a game behind the curtains. So as usual, I work around the room and ask each one of you to pose your questions and the reason behind it. And each of you will have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. So Marcus, if you want to introduce your question. Yes. So my question is, uh, how do you deal with managing immediate fires while trying to focus on long-term planning? So this sort of comes from, I think we've all experienced this at some points, is you're trying to do some long-term or some work that requires a bit more involvement, but then you've got people coming at you, hey, can you fix this like now? And then that takes up most of your day. So how how have you all dealt with that in the past or currently? Yep. 
Just an I, I crawled in a fetal position and hit <laughs> the shelf. <laughs> yeah, my first reaction is poorly. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, seriously, uh, from my perspective, at least, um, it always helps to uh, have at least one hour to kind of uh, close everything down at the end of the day, right? Uh, everything you started. And let's say by any chance, if by any chance somebody jumps in while you are having a thought, I try to to write that thought down because I have the attention span of a, of a tick. So uh, I really need to have a, a paper trace of that. But uh, by the end of the day, at le- I need to at least have one hour where I can go over the uh, the stuff I was thinking at the beginning of the day and try to to hash it out and plan it for the future. I would say. I'm gonna start with I guess the it's it's gonna sound um, corny of the like I usually ask clarification because I have found that most of the time when someone's trying to there's a fire to put out it's usually a communication problem of what's the actual priority what does this need to get done um and it has can regularly come from another member of the team not knowing what else is on your plate because uh, i used to be the person who's like yeah i'll do everything like i'll do this i'll get this done and then it was like you just you die of, of short-term stress yeah. and you never get to the long-term project the you walk into your reviews and you're like i never did that thing i said i was going to do six months ago um so I, it's a combination of trying to, as uh, you know, I said, trying to find specific time uh, and dedicate that for looking at things. But I also try and go, do I need to do this? Can I delegate it? Do I have a team who can do this? Uh, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, because I mean, I think it like boils down to sort of being able to prioritize it, right? Because sometimes yeah. you just have to say no. But then it's like some people, depending on their role in the company or the project, it's like it's hard to say no to certain people so how do you like yeah because you know you may if you have some producer or creative director says this needs to be done now but then you're in the middle of some qa validation that also needs basis like of equal if not higher importance you know so it's sort of like does that come with experience maybe i mean it's a bit harder maybe if you're junior or but uh yeah it is very hard <laughs> yeah well there's always the so the prioritization is always like i think that's the biggest thing the that the people need to learn right how to how to prioritize and uh, while sure when if you have like a producer like you like you just mentioned producer or creative director coming hey we need this now 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 because i don't know x y z reasons at the end of the day even even producers and even uh, uh, directors sometimes have horse television yeah yeah and they and they tunnel vision a bit uh, and mm-hmm. On the plus side, one thing I always liked about QC and it has helped uh, QCQA and it has helped uh, is you always have a like top-down view of stuff because you're involved in so many so many different subjects, so you can reach a point where you actually can uh, uh, set set the priority. Now, definitely, this portrays the the part of the project where where you are right because. Uh, when when it's the a project in pre-production or right after pre-production, and uh, you have uh, a, a director coming and saying, "We did need this needs to happen now, now, now." It's like, eh, well, does it truly need to happen right now, now, now? If it's a project in uh, 
at uh, towards the end towards the milestone that kind of like switches uh, gears a bit because that might actually need to happen back the, uh, right then so it it, it, it obviously it, uh, uh, it depends on at the state of the project and I'm guessing it's from project to project some projects run run for like I don't know five five years seven years ten years uh, while in other in other parts you have six eight months where you have to be on your feet constantly. Because I think, Paul, what you said was quite interesting. It's like, if you realize that, oh, the amount of immediate things you have to deal with is increasing, then it, you know, there must be like an underlying problem. Like, is it if that's communication or if it's just, you know, a lack of shared information? Because then it, you need someone or a group of people then to like put on the brakes and go, hey, hold up, this is not sustainable. We can't be... Because if you're if you're focusing on the now all the time, yeah. you're not really doing any actual development. You just sort of you know it's 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 like that. Uh, I think it was like Tom and Jerry or something. You know when they're putting down the track while the train is driving. Yeah, yes, I thought that was just video game development though. Like uh, <laughs> let's be frank, you know, it's, uh, uh, no, 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 no. We need to be agile. That's the the new buzzword. If you look at the, at the, like uh, all the right developers, and if you listen. If you listen to like all the interviews at all the sets, we need to be agile. Like, oh my god! <laughs> um, no, is it like yeah? So that kind of a solution only works in the mid to long term, though, because like it's not going to stop today's problem if a lot of people are are uh, at your throat for information. And if we want to use production as the example, apologies to producers, but I have found that the best way is to hit them in the pocketbook and explain that like. Are you willing to bear the cost that this reprioritization is going to take? Because normally it's like, what is a QA doing otherwise? And you know, we're doing quality work or we're overseeing stuff. And you know, like, it's like, I need you to do this. It's like, cool. If we can't do this, we have to hire more QA. We have to do this. This is the cost. So here, what you're doing is you're instead of saying like, this is especially when you want to say no, but you want to say no to either a person who's higher up doesn't like hearing no unless it's their idea or you need to give them no other reason i usually put the cost associated this is what it would cost you if you want me to do this i have to like this is what i am required to do and you know whether it's management legal uh lead requirements you know like this is what we would have to do to do it, it means that we're not testing this we're not doing this we, we that's a necessity we have to hire a contractor this is the cost of the contractor do you think this is a valuable effort i think it's yeah, I agree because it, it sort of speaks more "quote unquote" their language when you talk about costs, yeah. right? If not not just monetary, but then you say this is what it will cost you because it's a lot. It's always hard to translate because it's super clear for you when you say this will sacrifice quality like, or feature development time. It's like what does that mean to people higher up that aren't super involved? And it's not always a cynical position either. It's like even when I've been in a lead and a manager position, I won't hear the opportunity cost because I don't always know what's going on on the day to day. I have my expectations of what the priority is, but you may have come from a meeting or a sick with devs and everything's changed on your end. Uh, yeah, I would uh, I would say at that point, uh, personally, I kind of like I'm addicted to that to that type of scenario, like how uh, constant fires uh, to put out. That's like the, the, my, my most favorite, uh, not the healthiest, healthy, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. But uh, that's that's my favorite uh, time of the of a project, and Marcus Marcus knows this knows this. Uh, and I don't know if I've had maybe the this need of like to balance 
uh, or say no, let's say to, to higher ups, mostly because I have don't really have a problem saying that. So the the, the reason is you can you, you you can never say outright no, right? It's always gonna be why is that a no? And the something that I, uh, I I recently learned in the last couple of years is like sure you, you could say no, but chances are that's gonna be not the end of the story in some way shape or form so it's if you're gonna if you're gonna like say no mm-hmm. you need to justify it whether it's by a co- yeah uh, by a cost yeah. assessment or by like a quality assessment so that all that uh, always needs to to, to come from uh, from that perspective and once that is in uh, the, the 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 discussion changes it's no longer like hey wait a minute that when is when you say no outright people tend to take it personally it's also because say, because they might interpret it as like it's like no i don't want to which is never the yeah things, pretty right? much it's, 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 yeah they take it personally so it's like if you say well it's no because we have xyz reasons ah okay well let's fix those xyz reasons and maybe that no switches or let's let's mm-hmm. the problem is some other way the problem is the solution is normally just a lack of resources so when you say oh we need to hire people they sort of go oh yeah, yeah for the hiring people doesn't always solve the problem. Yeah, I do. So uh, I um, to the lack of resources is, sorry, this can be the economic background that that I have coming in. Lack of resources and, you know, that kind of thing is a fundamental understanding of economics and reality. And, there is no infinite mana. And, you know, oh, and, Marcus, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just, because uh, I also have to agree with the the it's hard to say no because then it gets into the problem where depending on how you say it they may take it as you disagreeing that there's a problem as opposed to disagreeing with the solution mm-hmm. uh, if it is a situation where someone's asking you to do something that it's from your professional opinion is absolutely screwy um, or is a waste of time and energy instead of you of saying no or shutting it down i usually try and inquire what is the intent because it could be something you were already doing it could be something you can merge with something else and you can dismiss and go oh we don't need to do that i've got it covered through this it's you know this risk management that risk management mm-hmm. um those kind of things yeah i agree with like uh, the manpower more manpower is not necessarily the, the answer you know the the, the saying that uh, like coders would joke around the the office massive what job what a coder can do in one week two coders can do in two weeks right <laughs> so it's like <laughs> it's a, more manpower is is definitely not not always the the answer uh, the tradi- traditional nine designers does not produce a baby in one month okay. <laughs> true right, good stuff so just a question then on that how different is it sort of prioritizing wise in a bigger company compared to a smaller company? Is it harder to prioritize tasks? Do you get more um, fires to put out in one than the other? How How is that different? I think like just having briefly sort of been now in both sort of a larger and now a smaller company is like, I think in a larger company, you're probably a lot more reliant on having good pipelines and workflows in place because you're managing a lot more people that have to work in parallel versus a smaller place where you're maybe 20 30 people where you can pivot a lot faster because the amount of people you need to speak to is a lot lower right versus if you need to communicate 
a workflow to like you know a development team of 200 people versus 20 people you, you can do that in a meeting and take questions very easily versus <laughs> i think we've all tried to be in a you know team meetings of 200 plus people there's like one speaker and you just sit and listen and then that's it you know and, and yeah the flexibility kind of like loses uh, loses its uh, <laughs> its agility <laughs> sorry I, that's that's my new uh, favorite buzzword every time after after this uh, period of uh, of time where where multiple companies showed the uh, showed games it's that that's my new favorite buzzword like uh, the, the 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 larger the number uh, the less agile you can be and the less fast you can pivot but at the same time the larger the number, the less um, what's the the less knowledge in a way you have to do. So you can pretty much specialize in a big company. You can specialize on one field when it's like a small company. I think I can say that I have worked in many small companies, but it's more like you have to be uh, always you deep in multiple other uh, other areas as well, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, if that's true, I'm going to put the exception out there because it, the the problems with large companies can be that, especially if we're talking from like a post QA standpoint or where you are on the pipeline, you can be sidelined or uh, siloed and blindsided easy because the conversation that is making the decision that is about to land on your desk is three floors up and you weren't invited. Um, so it's one of those things where you you have a dedicated role, you have a procedure, and you can follow that. And normally that means that you don't have a lot of these short-term chaos rules and that, but it's very easy to get without notice, that kind of like, okay, drop, all hands on deck, we've got to do this. Um, while you're in, if you're in a smaller team, which I've, I've worked on some teams with very some people, you usually have an inkling of like, ooh. I see everybody's going into a meeting. Well, I'm just going to clear the rest of my calendar for the day because <laughs> we're about to have definitely chaos. Like you, uh, there's you intuit more. Um, yeah, but also, yeah, it comes that you are then more responsible for everything. Uh, so. It's it's definitely very familiar what you're saying, Paul. Uh, it's happened more than once uh, where you sort of found out about something very late and like oh but we never agreed we had time to test this they're like oh but it's happening now like okay i guess we're making that work (laughs) you know it's not a video game uh experience but i have software qa experience from back in the states and i was one of a thousand qa at a fifteen thousand person company um and killed the project on its launch day because no one decided to inform my team (laughs) Because someone came in and just went, hey, you want to read through these requirements? And I just like looked at it and went, we're in violation of like three federal laws. And they went, and now the project is no longer going. <laughs> and yeah. the pipeline is always like, uh, yes, you want to avoid being. <laughs> no, that's, that's crazy. But it's really interesting to see the difference as well. And that, you know, maybe you know, how the communication is slightly different with bigger companies to smaller ones. Um, But I will move on. Um, If, Jonas, if you want to introduce the topic that you want to discuss um, and just sort of the um, thought behind it. Uh, Right. Uh, I don't know if I I added it in the chat, but I would say um, one of the the biggest things that came up uh, recently, especially in the last couple of years, is costs, right? The more uh, 
the more we uh, the, the more complex the games uh, become the, the the more cost uh, those uh, need to add it. and this, it's kind of like the movie the movies people tend to think that it, you need a huge blockbuster constantly and the huge blockbuster eats a lot of a uh, lot of resources and a lot of uh, cost which then translates at one point to the uh to the end user and recently uh most of the prices have gone to like 70 euros slash us dollars uh, across the board um and i just wanted to ask what are people's feelings on that because to me or maybe and maybe i'm just like uh tunnel visioning that seems to be a a, a good way to, to, to look to go forward uh, because technically the tech hasn't changed that much, right? It has changed, uh, like the Unreal, Unreal Engine has progressed further, but at the core basis, it's still C++ and, and everyone knows kind of like the C++ is the most custom-made thing that you can get. You can, you, you can do, you need to do pretty much everything by yourself. You can't really get uh, packages anywhere. So that was that's one uh, that that was pretty much my my subject and my neighbors seems to have decided that they want to start renovating. Uh, right. So basically, but basically you're asking like you know the cost of games both making and selling has gone up. Yeah, I mean I think I talked to someone about this not so long ago and like I know there was some not uproar but you saw people like, oh but PS5 games cost seventy euro or. PC games, maybe not as much, but at least for the consoles. But if you think about it, like the price of games hasn't gone up in a very long time. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, if it's on, well. it's not until the past ten years where you know a game did cost fifty euro, fifty dollars, sixty dollars, or something plus minus, right? Yeah. But yeah, I didn't think about the about the cost of you know making games, salaries, uh, energy costs for studios and licenses. Those have always gone up every year. So it's not like on on the surface, yeah. Oh wow, games are now less accessible because it's more expensive. But it's also cost of making games has gone up quite a bit as well. I so a, a weird perspective on this one because I exist in the not triple A video game. Like the games I've released have never been seventy dollars and aren't considered those giant budget things. And I mean, they are. It is. I have seen the numbers. God, it takes a fair amount of money to make a game. Uh, and I'm not going to disagree with any of. People deserve a good salary. You know, you need to make your money on investment. You can argue about where the monetization is exactly. But I think one of the interesting things about the general price increase of the AAA games is it is a shot of uh, adrenaline into the indie industry and the AA because it is their their niche has now become even more. Like they can target that. There's the they not only have a, a they can follow the trend there's an excuse to like their prices should go up, that kind of thing like if the major brands are moving their prices up they're able to extract more value for their games that kind of stuff but also if there's a, a group of people who are no longer able to afford or wanting to afford a triple a price for their games there is a market for them and that market has plenty of attention in that so you know that i i see it as an interesting Thing. We we could probably spend a couple hours and I can argue about the well, yeah, about about video game prices and 
I'd be more fine with video game cost increases if it meant, uh, you know, a, a better salary among most of the companies and that kind of stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's, I do also think it's an inevitability. Like video game prices have not changed in multiple years. And if maybe we'll see the, the death of continual tech requirements because of it. Uh, no, I don't actually think so. It, it well, depends. That's it, another think, subject. But I mean, I, yeah, just, but it's a fun one. <laughs> but do you think it's like an, an inevitable sort of bubble? If we look at like you know, if AAA development specifically is going to increase in cost, or like it just becomes just non-profitable at one point, or what do you think? I I think it's going to be uh, like the movie industry, right? At one point, it is it is a bubble, in essence. Because you have to, your next movie needs to be making freaking more than the last one, and the next one needs to be more than the last one, and the, and not only not only in 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 profits, but even where even in uh, in production, right? You had at one point, what was it? X Men, the first one was like when that when that thing came. Jesus, look at that! That was awesome. But yeah, because. Because it depends then, because then you look at like, okay, how how can we increase profit margins on the next one? And then you, exactly. you maybe, I, 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 I've not been involved on that level, but like, do you look at product, okay, where can we not cut costs, but where can we reduce production costs to, you know, and then who, who does that hit? Be, that yeah. could be a good, uh, like a good way to, to maybe uh, to investigate as in like an, an ideal scenario is, hey, uh, we need to make more money from the next movie slash game cool okay uh what can we what can we do uh we can't let's say increase we need to make a, a better game obviously but we can't really increase the number of people to work on uh, and chances are okay that i guess we need to start looking at automation we need to start looking at improvement uh improvement in the workflow we need to to optimize we need to to get better quality for the amount of money that that we make and ultimately in some places unfortunately that that comes and okay we need to make less people we need to have yeah. less people which is like a weird a very very short sight in my eyes it has it has the potential to drive optimization but if we're going to compare the the growth of video game prices and sort of like the major part of the industry to the movie industry i'm i'm going to pull out the have you have you looked at the movie industry recently? Maybe. Yeah, but like yeah, you know but what I mean. That's the thing. Because because it's the thing is like it's it's a, almost a self-perpetuating problematic cycle because yeah. if you're if you're trying to make it where your entire profit is coming from these seventy to eighty dollar releases that are these big blockbuster releases that can't fail and they can't fail and they have to make more, you are never going to make a a a risky choice. Yeah, you're going to make the blandest, cookie cutter, uh, executively driven game possible. Which, sure, those games can still be interesting. I am, I've like, I'm not going to sit on a soapbox and say that that they're all horrible. I have played some, you know, standard games that are like, I'll go back and play Halo constantly. I, I, I have my nostalgia glasses and and I exist. I don't know, like, yeah, I'd like, I, I'm with you on that one. It's like yeah, Halo for me. I just like finished what few months ago uh through the through that so no let's not talk i, I always go back to those yeah but 
it seems that it seems that I know it, it's an unavoidable circumstance. And the thing is, when you, when you, when you said about uh, Marcus, uh, it being uh, a bubble, it seems so because uh, and uh, just like you said, Paul, mm-hmm. the the movie industry. Uh, if you ask me, uh, they're kind of like starting to trail off. I mean, there's only so much so many explosions and things happening at the same time on the screen yeah. that 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 uh, until it gets boring so that one is starting to lose uh, to to burst for us uh, we still have a ways before that does i'm hoping I mean, it's not good i'm hoping we can we can more address address it but uh, we'll see i mean it, it, the bubble the bubble is going to burst it, the question is only when uh, exactly because it's but also, it's that thing where it's like if I'm if talking before about double A and the indie side of things, we are already seeing that with multiple publishers that they're moving, they're diversifying the amount of releases. It's not all triple A; they're willing to. Yeah, there's there's this giant increase in the startup studios. So, like, um, your EA is not going to be a, making a game that is going to take risks because of their nature and needing to make a profit but they will fund a studio that will do so. And so like the industry has kind of adapted to doing this. It's whether or not that adaptation will survive um, the ine- the inevitable kind of thing. I mean, that was also kind of always going to happen, right? Because if you think yeah. about it, what, what AAA was 10 years ago is not really what AAA was or is now. Like it's not, it, it's not one-to-one, right? Because I mean, for me, when I was going to release AAA, go, oh, it's this huge blockbuster, huge game. There's very few companies that can do AAA, you know, properly. Yeah. Um, but then it also sort of saturates it a bit. If you're like a company, or there's a lot of them all are doing AAA. It's sort of, ah, oh, but then you're getting these huge production games that you have to choose from. And as a consumer, right, it's hard because, it, you know, you only have X amount of time in your day and X amount of money in your wallet to spend uh, on any of them. I, I actually think that a better example um, of looking at things, instead of going into the uh, looking at the movie industry, look at the board game industry. And this might also be because I've worked in a board game store. They, we've, we've, I might have sent people if they hear this and go, we may have reached the zenith of the golden age of board games. It doesn't mean that there isn't any Kickstarters anymore, but like the age of that was founded by Catan and all of that, where all of the board games were like just you made a board game, if it was good, it was always going to be successful. That's gone. And especially because of the trade war and blah, 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 but that's a political argument. Like, But if you look at that with video games, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to maintain success in a niche, and that's going to be the cost of actual video games. Which means that like throwing money at it isn't going to be the only solution. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I just wanted to ask as well, though, if, if we are you know, the video game industry is going to be more expensive and if people are going to throw more money at it. To keep, do you reckon it would be a better way to sort of make sure that the games reach a bigger audience and that way you are bringing in more money but you don't have to raise the price of the games? Oh, I have Uh, opinions on this. Yeah, same same here. So, uh, well, that always is the 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 like the the best. The problem is when you try, you're gonna try to uh, to approach more people. Unavoidably, you're gonna lose a lot of people, right? Because let's let's take a a, a very hardcore uh, hardcore game, uh, Eve Online. That like I've played a lot of Eve Online in the past. 
now not so much because I didn't really have the time. Don't don't really have the time. But that one's that one has the learning uh, learning curve of like taking off straight to the heaven, right? And they try to make it, uh, and it's always being considered kind of a niche game. Uh, and they try to make it appeal to more people. Uh, obviously, you start to lose some of the hardcore fans. Uh, that as well as. If you look at how many people got into the console slash uh, PC market in the last 10 to 20 years, the numbers haven't grown that 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 many that much, right? Mobile, yeah, huge. But then what? Six million people, so, something like that. I but I've had this. Okay, no, no sorry, go on, Paul. No, go. On. I've had this argument a thousand times, and it's misleading data from my perspective um, because you're you're making. Two assumptions. Uh, you're making assumptions by the growth of of PC and console players versus mo- uh, mobile data uh, players that you've already saturated your PC and console player market. As a, like, so and I'm because I, I agree, mobile gaming has uh, drastically drawn, but like, there's always places to grow. I have a bit of, I guess, the expertise of this of being the game like Eve Online of that. The grand strategy niche of paradox. We've had oh, this the, problem. Crusader Kings one. Crusader Kings, uh, Victoria Three, that kind of stuff. And it's um, there. There's a difference because, like, we we've had this discussion internally, and I'm not going to talk too many details because that's their their information and plans. But like, there's the difference between losing your hardcore audience if your main way to get more players is by dumbing down the mechanics, which is what mm. hardcore fans fear about. But accessibility is not dumbing down. And accessibility isn't just changing mechanics. There is a lot of game space to grow by simple things of uh, making more accessible UIs, doing uh, better uh, language and translation, all of that kind of stuff. Like There are the weird parts of game development that no one's really thought of recently. Because it... Cause, yeah, I agree. Victoria 3, we have a colorblindness art, and the number of people who can play now with colorblindness, like, they're, I think, they're so... I think it's also great, I mean, if, if you look at those more niched, uh, if you can say, like, hardcore games, like, at least for me, like, yeah. you, you want to sort of invite people in to experience, because, you know, if you are a hardcore fan of a game, you want other people to experience the same thing you're experiencing. Uh, but it's always really hard, like you said, if the learning curve is, you know, straight up, you know, and there's not much, because you might not have the time to teach your friends how to play EVE Online, but if, you know, if those games had more of like a, you know, normal learning curve, or there's a way like, hey, if you're hardcore, you can skip all this, but if you're new, welcome to the, this world, we'll, you know, step by step. But I think that's hard, right? Because a lot of games yeah. do onboarding really well, and then other games just sort of ignore and just go, oh, here, here's here's the game, figure it out, and like, oh, okay. I think that the games that are ignoring onboarding are trying to sell themselves as the difficult game. That's their issue. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, I have I have some experience of that now when I um, joined Red Sport since it's the same racing game. It was so a steep learning curve for me in, in terms mm-hmm. of like not only do you have to understand sim racing games. But you also have to have an understanding of how cars work in real life as well. You know, so understanding yeah. all the terms and you know, it it's not innate as it's like partially. You know, you have to understand physics because you have to understand how tires behave in you know in certain. It's just crazy what you need to learn, but that's like not innate. But it's 
very cool once you learn it, but like it takes a while to figure it out. Yeah, but you have to have yeah. the time. <laughs> yeah, and spend the time and have people I, explain it to you, uh, which is hard. And you have to do that in a game. Time is also the important thing. Like if we're if we're talking about you know how do you grow your game's audience and how do you make sure that industry can you can grow and reach more people, you have to look a lot at your, your game loops and your your development cycles. Like for example, Paradox games can take multiple days. Like we're we're known to be that kind of campaign. You started this, and maybe three weeks later, with a playing, you finish. Mm. And that's our niche. We're fine with that. But it's also the like you have a. We do look at the game, and we go, you have a limited amount of time, and the loops that you see on the screen, only so many can have your attention at once. And you have to like you start looking at that, and you look at it on a meta level of like, am I making a game that requires somebody to log in on a regular basis and to play every day? How am I judging the value that I'm getting out of that. And I, you know, I have a personal feeling that we're seeing a lot more games shift towards shorter, tighter loops. Mm -hmm. Um, Have fun. Um, And I don't actually think that's a problem. We're not in the days of the original World of Warcraft where you could, like, leveling to 16 was the the grind and everyone enjoyed it. You know, like, because that was different. It's a different market then. But do you think there's like a reason then, or like what we're, you know, some games just are difficult to learn or to like because they aren't accessible in the sense that like you can't just sort of download, hop in, and play because you need to spend a week or two to learn. That's or, always like, gonna be the thing. That's always gonna be like depending on the genre. That's always gonna yes. be uh, the uh, like what the uh, paradox is like. Crusader Kings. It's a fun game. It's a but you. You need to spend some time to start actually just looking into into. It. Yeah, so like we've taken stabs at it, and it's kind of hard because that's part of the appeal. Is like yeah, like exactly. that, that, it's like it's like it's like going oh, what if I only let you build three blocks in SimCity? Which you know, like yeah. I remember yeah. the day when SimCity tried that mistake, and then City Skylines came out, and everyone ditched SimCity. Um, you know, mm. it's hard, but then there, what you the what we've tried previously with onboarding experiences, one of my personal favorite ways to onboard players is you play co-op. So instead mm-hmm. of saying you learn everything, you're learning this part of it. You have multiple people participating in the same country, which in my own, like, because most of the games can have it where you are playing in the same country with everyone having sequestered walls and mm-hmm. only able to touch certain systems. Uh, does it make it easier for you? No, there's possibility to turn on AI and other stuff. It's it's hard. Um, personally, I think um, Stellaris does it kind of the best, but Stellaris is also playing as a 4X, which means that it has that unique ability to play in a civilization style. We're only starting with one planet, so you, the game inevitably grows and becomes more complex, but if you start up Hearts of Iron and you start up as the Soviet Union right before Operation Barbarossa, good luck. And you have no idea what the game screen is. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> well, we'll move on to Paul's um, questions. Um, if you want to introduce one of your questions, Paul. Well, I the question I want to hear the most about is we have all started in QA. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have brought our habits along with us for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, which habits have you brought with you from QA and have found that they've been incredibly useful? And which ones did you have to relearn? It's a good question. You're still in it. I'm still in QA. So I was saying, yeah, Marcus, you've come to leadership. Would you also like, I hope you've had to relearn something from it, but I also, yeah. 
I think it's I think someone said it earlier, uh, but I think it's sort of your QA is one of the very few uh, like roles where you're involved in pretty much everything uh, at some point. So I think even if you're moving into a bit more of a leadership role, I think it's sort of this better understanding of how one decision can affect so many more people than you think because you're not you're not just working in a silo like i'm going to work on this or i'm going to do x but that you have this you know coming from qa you're like well if you do this do you know that this will affect this other team or do you know if this uh if the code team even has time to be able to help you with this because there's a dependency you know having that uh just it's just like default it's like every every time any decision is made you just sort of go okay who else needs to be involved how how many people are affected by this so you just always loop in more people than you have to so it's just like muscle memory almost at, that, at this uh, point it uh, it also helps that uh, you had uh, good colleagues for a long period <laughs> of time yes <laughs> yes yeah that's very good thank you thank you <laughs> um, <laughs> From uh, from my side, I guess it's uh, problem fixing, trouble troubleshooting. Uh, that and I definitely kept that. Uh, what I left behind, I'm not as uh, stiff as I was uh, before, and as I'm not as like. Uh, you mean you're more agile? Is that what you're saying? Uh, what is? Oh, now that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah i think and that's that's one of the biggest uh, the biggest things uh that that you kind of learn in, in 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 qa is uh not agile damn you marcus uh but uh more like uh, troubleshooting right because especially when uh, tied tied back to to marcus's initial point with uh fires right it's uh, you don't necessarily have the the time to talk to a lot of people, so you can kind of start to go down the rabbit hole a bit. Okay, if we need to fix this, what the hell is going on here? What's not working there? What's not? And start start uh, delving into that. And that, while not in that technical aspect of uh, uh, the same idea, it's uh, that's one of the the best skills that you can have, because ultimately. Uh, the decision to let's say pull everyone, and that might actually sometimes be the the case, pull everyone in a room. Yo, this is a, a problem that might actually result in uh, way more uh, way more issues and time waste. So I think troubleshooting and trying to look at it from a, from a top perspective and just trying to see exactly what's wrong and maybe talking to a limited number of people because the more cooks you have in the kitchen the suckier the food gets uh is i think one of the most important thing that you can bring over what about you paul uh i'm so i i will agree with you like the thing that i had to relearn is i as i moved further up the ranks of qa and eventually moved over to design i had to kick perfectionism to the curb um because it care like you know yet it matters more of what you're the end result as opposed to the exact processes you're doing to get there, even though those processes are important. Um, the thing that the habit that I picked was always remembering the design documentation that I had received or didn't. Uh, and There's I documentation. Yeah. No, 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 no. This, yeah. Um, so I am always, I am I, like the day I don't make the effort to be, it may not be the greatest, but it's like good 
design documentation of like, this is what I'm doing. This is why we're doing it. This is the intent to give QA the ability to not just do technical checking, but also it enhances QA's ability to then look and go, does this fit the pillars of design? Like, are we actually making the game with this intent as opposed to, does it technically work? Uh, it has been that one thing. And it's, it's not a, a QA skill I brought with me. It's a QA want that I brought with me because God, it would have been so nice to have received that. I've actually experienced something like uh, worked with a few designers in the past who also have come from QA and they've always had the best documentation. Yeah. So I think they know the struggles it is without it. So at least in my experience, you, it's, you can definitely tell, yeah. you, can, you can tell which designers have come from QA and which sort of have not, which is fine, but you can it's a very obvious giveaway. Like, ah, mm-hmm. you actually keep your confidence up to date every day. That's super cool, you know? Um, yeah, it's a very nerdy thing to do. We get made fun of it for... We make, get made fun of it uh, by other designers, but we do it regardless, because... <laughs> poor QA. Like, There's no shame. There, there is a QA that's just going, looking at this going, but what does it mean? <laughs> yeah. And then a final question that I did want to ask before we wrap up is actually one that I'm pinching from you, Paul. Um, I do want to hear um, what you all wish you knew five years ago about the gaming industry um, that you now know. Um, does anyone want to start with that one? How to get uh, out. I'm joking. We've helped me. I prepped in a video game factory in Sweden. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, they won't let us leave. Go ahead. No, I think. Sorry, man. I think it's it's not so much something I wish I knew, but more like been aware of. Like having now been more involved, higher up is like the people that make the ultimate decisions. Or the, you know, if we're talking maybe in the producer role, associate producer role, is how at least in my experience, how not little they know because that's not true, but a bit like you know, oh. It's a lot of figuring. It's not as organized and as structured as in my head when I was like a junior QA. It was like, oh, it's probably super planned. Everything is, you know, super detailed. And then once you sort of, yeah, a bit more of an insight, you're like, oh, it's mildly chaotic, just mildly. And it's like, you know, and you're making these decisions for huge companies or that have, you know, huge implications that affect a lot of people. You're like, oh, it's both cool at the same time because you're like, oh, it is just kind of what I imagined, but also not. Mm. I loved your notes you death stare. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that was also my answer because, like, five years ago, I was just entering the industry. I was I got out of uh, software tech. I was, you know, was like, ah, I'm gonna go into the video game industry. This is gonna be fun. This is gonna be different. And I remember being the junior QA, and whenever a decision would come down, I was like, oh, clearly. Those above me have made this decision for X reasons and they see this perfect view and like I could disagree with it. And many times I was like, oh, they're just being jerks. So then you get up there and you're like, nobody knows what they're doing. And that's not to say that we're all fools. It's just that like it is very much the this is an industry where it's we're still figuring a lot of things out as we go. It's creative and that mm-hmm. it, it cannot follow a perfect pipeline and a perfect process. It has this creative element to it, which means it's a lot of educated best guesses. Mm-hmm. which means it comes down to communication issues and that. But like, I remember I was once a lead and I was just like, management needs to do this. Management needs to understand these things. And then like the day I became a director and I moved, I walked into that meeting and I'm just like, oh, nobody knows what they're doing. This imposter syndrome can go away now. Yeah. It's, it's like, but it's, you know, 
but it's like you said, Paul. Like it's it's yeah. it's not a negative thing. It's just more like no. an interesting take of like you said. It's a creative industry, so yeah. everyone's sort of figuring out best guess from their own experience. Yeah, to sort of mm-hmm. draw up a plan. That's where it comes from, right? We are not. Any defense though? No, 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 no. Because I'm thinking, I'm thinking like, uh, so what? What was it? Uh, five? What was it that I wish I knew five years ago? Um. Nothing. I knew everything, but uh, <laughs> the eyes, <laughs> lies. <laughs> uh, but no, um, I would say hmm, I wish I, w- I I wish back then I would uh, I, I would I was a bit more open to this uh, how my decisions influence and how pretty much uh, what you do is what uh, how how that affects the other people because I was kind of like Marcus knows my my head was always like okay I'm, I'm a very technical person so I really I'm a technical person so I'm just gonna freaking do my own stuff and I have my 10 monitors and I have my five consoles and I have my 20 then I don't care about anyone else but every time I would do something like somebody will the hey problem we have a problem there so I would say that's a skill uh, knowing how your decision kind of propagates around, uh, that definitely is the thing. Because I thought five years ago, I didn't care. It was like just like, okay, so I guess that's how it's gonna be. No, it's really, it's really good to hear. Just you know how things have changed for you in the space of five years as well. Um, but I think that's a really good place to wrap up the podcast. Um, so I'd like to say thank you so much to all our guests for sharing their thoughts. They've been Paul, Jonas and Marcus. And if you wish to participate in a future podcast or would like to discuss how we can help you find the perfect next addition to your team, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks again to all our guests and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.